Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from Cat Swamp Road, who's adjusting the microphone as the show starts, which is not good, but thank God uh, I was able to get this pinch bolt down in time before the microphone went crashing and I'd have to start all over again. So uh, hopefully the sound of my voice as things going well, we're, we're sneaking up on Christmas, boy, is the year flying by, right? And I guess in many instances, thank God it did. So uh, who knows? But um, I also want to remind you, not also, I want to remind you to go and listen to the uh, What to Buy the Hot Rod Farmer in Your Life Christmas Gift Guide. And remember, that's the podcast and also the supporting article, the primer, as we would say in journalism, the article, which has the buyer's guide with the pictures of the different things that I am uh, suggesting. I don't want to say recommending, but suggesting and links to the companies, the particular company's website. So uh, please check that out. And as I've said last week, go back into the archives on my website and you could see the buyer's guide for 2018, 19, and 20. So that is uh, and something that you could use as a resource. So that basically is that. And let me see what else is going on. Uh, as I said, we, um, you know, we're, we're charging uh, five volts on a TPS, right? Throttle to the floor. So if you never worked on fuel injection, five volts on a TPS would mean nothing to you. But uh, most engine sensors uh, work on a five volt signal and uh, on a throttle position sensor five volts or near it probably wouldn't go to five volts be near five volts is considered wide open throttle so that's why i say we're charging at five volts to the tp on the tps to wide open throttle but talking about electronics i want to share a little uh like an fyi and this this <laughs> this true story because everything I tell is a true story. I'm not going to make stuff up here. And uh, you know, further, further, further um, substantiates my point why I don't think that there will ever be autonomous cars and autonomous farm tractors. So, uh, and that is not to be confused with that they don't exist and can't work. That's not, that's not to be confused with that. They definitely exist on the test track and in the test field and what have you. But um, just, I don't think that you will ever see them on the road. But hey, I've been wrong about a lot of things. So hopefully I'm not wrong about that because I really think it'll be a disaster. But anyway, so to my point is that my ever Ford Fiesta, which I love, 200 2000 miles got the original air filter i told you that a couple of weeks ago. original air filter and the thing looks like brand new you could put it right back in a box but anyway so a few years back i was um, at the truck stop having coffee and i came back out locked the car with the remote which is part of the key fob. the key fob is part of the key it separates as a little clip there and it separates them, and so you could take it apart and change the battery in the fob. And the the fob worked fine. I locked the car, came back out. This is a couple of years ago, and I went to go unlock the car. The thing is dead. So I said, "Geez, you know, what the heck happened here? Did the battery die in the fob? Did the battery die in the car? Because you could have sudden death syndrome, and the battery could die." And I did a show about that early on in the uh, in the uh, idle chatter history back in the archives. 
So, it, so the the fob died. So I said, "All right, well, it must be must be a battery. Got to figure out how to get a battery in there." So I went to my friend. I couldn't figure out how to get it apart. I saw where I thought it came apart, but I, you know, it's all plastic, and I don't want to pry on it. And lots of times, you know, you uh, you bust it first, and then you find, oh, that's where the clip how the clip works. So I went to my friend Kurt Mesmer over in Smithford in Washington, real good technician. I said to him, you know, how do you get this thing apart to, to um, try the battery to stop working? And so I figured it's the battery, right? Uh, you know, pick the low-hanging fruit first. So uh, he struggled with it a little bit because I guess, you know, each key is different, right? They can't make anything the same. So he got it apart, and then we put a battery in right there at the Ford dealer, and it didn't work. So, so I said, all right, well, whatever. So he was saying, well, sometimes they got to be reprogrammed. I said, whatever. I said, I got another set of keys that I never used with the car. I'll see if that one works. So came home, got the other set of keys, and it worked fine. So I put the the failed key, or should failed fob, I should say, because the car started fine with the key. It's just that it wouldn't, it wouldn't do the, um, the locks, the remote door locks. So put it in a box where I would keep the extra keys and went on with my life. Now fast forward to the other day, back at the truck truck stop again. Must be something about that TA truck stop. So um, same same scenario. I go to, uh, I lock the car, go out with my coffee, go for my walk, come back, go to unlock it. Deja vu, won't work. So I said, all right. So I said, let, let me put a battery in it. Now that I know how to take it apart from a couple of years ago, I remembered more or less, not per se, but I saw how it came apart, where the seams were. Because sometimes you can't tell a seam from the parting line in the in the mold because they uh, they they it, it fits so tightly. So I got it apart, had a battery. Actually, it was the same battery, a twenty uh, CR2032 that I use in the hour meter on my pressure washer, my steel RB400 pressure washer. So I had an extra one of those put it in there okay fine get to go dead doesn't work the battery's not dead doesn't work so i said all right so uh did a little bit of research looked on the internet which for the most part is usually a, a waste of time and so they go through, so there's a couple of videos and they were from a ford dealer someone from somebody else some guy who sells keys and and he tells you, you got to go in the car and you got to turn the key cycle the key on and off 10 times within 30 seconds and then end with the key off and then put the key on and then press one of the buttons and you reprogram the remote so i but they they said when you do the key last time you cycle a key that the doors are supposed to lock well that never happened so and in the videos they said well try it again because maybe you didn't do it fast enough so i tried that six or seven times i didn't particularly like doing that because i kept short cycling my fuel pump i said i'm going to end up burning out the fuel pump for this stupid key and i did that it didn't work it didn't it didn't lock the door so i used that as a as a sign that that's not going to work and it didn't it, ultimately the fob did not work and then i looked on some other site and said do it eight times not ten times so i said well i'll try it one more time or twice that didn't do anything it never, the telltale is supposed to be in the last time you cycled the keys the doors are supposed to lock which it did not do and then um I went into the Ford, the owner's manual of the car, right, which I should have gone there first, and they tell you the same thing, but do it six times. So between 10 times, eight times, six times, that did not work. So I knew that they had it the Ford dealer. Uh, I'm going to use the word gizmo. My father used to use that word. A gizmo to check to see whether the key is sending out a signal. 
so maybe the fob isn't fine and maybe it's the receiver in the car so i go over there and uh, my other friend matt real nice guy a younger guy he's got a beautiful uh, green whatever they call it the wimbledon that it's wimbledon i forget what they call it green with the bull got a 2019 bull mustang uh i can't remember the name of the green they call gorgeous car so I said to him, yeah, he says, oh, I could check it for you. So we check it, and what happens is if he holds the key next to the tester, it's a handheld, looks almost like a little vault meter. Well, actually, it looks like a cell phone, and and it beeps, but if you hold it about two feet away or a foot away, it doesn't beep, it doesn't recognize it. So he said, all right, do you have a new battery? He said, yeah, brand new battery. He said, ah, all right, well, you need to get a new one. So I said, I don't know what's the matter with it. He says, so he says it's recognizing it but it seems like the signal's very weak so i go over to the parts department and i'm only telling you this just so you could have it in the back of your mind go over to the parts department i order the key fob which is 104 hours obviously they don't have it they have to come in i said all right fine it's not the end of the world so that's it so at least i felt confident that uh i have a concrete diagnosis here that the key fob doesn't send the signal far enough so um i walk back to the car and i said to my and i get in the car and i try it it doesn't work so which i didn't think it was going to work two minutes before then I mean, it wasn't working so i said to myself well i bet you that receiver must be under the dashboard some I mean, under by the glove box someplace so i bend over because i remember of course when we checked it with the tool if if he held it if matt held it close to the tool then it would recognize it. So I said, so I lean over and I bend down, I put it, I don't, I don't know where the receiver is. I'm assuming it's under the glove box, by the glove box in place. So I go over there and I press it, boop, and the thing locks the doors. Boop, it unlocks the doors. So, all right, well, that proves what, <clears throat> what we just saw, that it's producing a signal, but a weak signal. So I said, all right, so I start the car and drive home. And then I'm thinking about it, I'm saying to myself, you know, what if it's producing a signal but the signal is weak now i know nothing about remote key fobs i mean i don't like zero other than to press the button and the doors open and send the signal and this one uses a cr2032 battery so i said to myself well there must be some sort of amplification circuit in there because they probably have to put that through some amp like a repeater would be on an am radio station i don't know if fm has that but am radio station where they send the signal so far and then they juice it again they boost it up and send it further so i said there must be some sort of amplifier circuit in there, and that must be what fails i bet that's what failed in the other one because i never checked the other one at the ford the other other than just not working <clears throat> so i said all right fine that's good so i drive back home to the farm here which is about 15 16 miles and pull the car into the garage and i mean i would not lock it in the garage but i say to myself all right for the hell of it i'm going to try it i don't know why for grins and giggles right not bending over just sitting into whoop the doors lock i said whoop the doors unlock all right that's crazy i said so i get out of the car I open. I, I walk outside the garage. I walk twenty feet away. Boop! The doors lock. Thing works perfectly now, a hundred percent perfectly. So I don't know. It didn't work when I left the Ford, when I walked out of the Ford dealer. When I went, I I put put it near the receiver, which I perceived was the receiver. It worked. Drove home. Obviously, then wasn't locking and unlocking the doors. Driving home. And now it's a week and it works beautifully. 
So I'm going to take the old one out and try to do the same thing. So the moral of the story is that these electronics are spooky. I don't know what happened to it. It happens that both of them happened at the truck stop. Is that a real data point? Who knows? Happens that it happened at the truck stop. Uh, in theory, it did not want to read the tool, didn't want to read it. It was more than a foot away. And so I don't know whether it needed to like reboot like a computer and it rebooted itself somehow and it works fine. So I have a $104 key on order that I'm going to keep anyway because I'm not going to, I mean, they had to special order it. So I'll just, you know, who knows, maybe this thing will crap out tomorrow. But just something to keep in mind that if you ever have a problem with one of these keys, you may just need to reboot them and obviously changing the battery didn't do it but somehow that tool must have done it or i have i have no idea because the tool didn't it didn't work until i went by the glove box and then once it seemed to <clears throat> i would say like if it was an old well that lost its prime that once i primed it that way it works fine so who knows so uh just that is fyi and if anyone knows more about these key fobs but that's you know if, let me get in today's show but i'm belaboring this for 20 minutes but the thing is that um you know that's why i'm saying with these autonomous vehicles and all this stuff too much i'm going to use the word spooky too much spooky stuff goes on with all of these things that uh that i would not trust a vehicle driving down the road or a tractor going across a field uh and then some some kind of the, the signal skews and the thing takes off or stops dead in the middle of the road or what have you and uh it's too too complicated you know in engineering we say kiss keep it simple stupid too complicated so anyway that is my story for you to um to ponder all right what are we going to talk about today on idle chatter well what i'm going to discuss is the tools of engine development and i'm not talking i'm not going to be talking about like software or this that or cad game or rapid prototyping or uh things of that nature um they used to use lom laminate ob- object manufacturing as a rapid prototyping now they use that stereo what are they called stereo lithography printing or whatever they call it uh, that printing i forgot that they call that but anyway uh what i'm going to talk about is the development tools the development equipment that is used when uh, a manufacturer whether it's a farm tractor or a car or what have you or a motorcycle or an industrial engine the different tools that are used and the reason why i'm bringing this up to you is that i know i have a very eclectic audience and it's always nice to understand how things happen because you know they don't happen through magic so and if you have some and you're not you're not going to buy any of these tools I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars or, or maybe even more. And some of them are less, obviously. Excuse me, but you have an idea of what's going on. So how it works and, and what the different steps they go through and how an engine is developed for the most part. So that is what we're going to talk about today. And hopefully you enjoy it. Well, when I had my engine shop, Precise Automotive and Marine, i used to i called it a a slide rule engine most people don't even know what a slide rule is but a slide rule engine so in other words i would work backwards and predominantly i did drag race stuff so i would say to the potential customer okay how fast do you want to go and 
or how, how now in drag racing is the element of you making the horsepower and then you need to get the horsepower to the ground so you have the drivetrain you have the suspension and you have the tire so and in drag racing or you would say how fast do you want to go or how quick do you want to go so if you wanted it so quick would be the et the elapsed time in a quarter mile and fast would be the mile and the speed the mile an hour that you achieved at the end of the quarter mile which is the last 60 feet of the track actually the i actually the et clock and the mile per hour clock, the beams we call them, are 60 feet apart. So the first clock that comes up is the timer, ET, that stops, and then the mile now, and you break that beam, and then it goes to the next beam 60 feet away, and that's where the speed is calculated. So you would say, how quick do you want to go? How fast do you want to go? Now, some the reason why I'm telling you that is because you're going to need power regardless. You're going to need horsepower, torque. Torque is actually what you need, even though everybody looks at horsepower but you're going to need power to make the to have the car accelerate to the level that the customer wants and so everything is about power whether it's a farm tractor all right we buy well that's a 330 horsepower or you buy a combine you buy a, a semi you buy whatever a lawnmower it's six horsepower lawnmower so power is really what's going to get the work done or actually torque gets the work done but power is how quick we could do the work but that's not what we're going to discuss here i've, I've went over that in, in the show many many times so i used to work backwards and say okay how how what et what mile an hour are you looking for uh most people were looking for et they were not looking for mile per hour speed they were looking more et focused and then i'd say okay how much does the car weigh estimate what the car weighs or go get it weighed and then we could go from there and what i would basically do was then work backwards and say all right fine you want to go uh 12 o's and the car weighs four thousand pounds let's say i'm making numbers up in my head and i would do the math and say okay to go 12 o's and on a four thousand pound car you're going to need 400 horsepower let's say and then i would go backwards from that and say well how much airflow do i need through the cylinder head to make 400 horsepower and that's okay i would do the equation the math for that and say i need whatever 270 cfm right there 270 cfm what kind of cylinder head am i going to need to use to make to get 270 cfm so i would work that way and there's other elements to it with the camshaft or what have you and then the drivetrain but ultimately the engine is the power source so everything starts there that's where the rubber meets the road no pun intended and if you look at the if you look at how engines are developed and I'm not talking in precise automotive, I'm talking on the professional level, the OE level, original equipment, is that they basically do the same thing. They have a design goal. And there's an adage in the automobile industry that really don't hear in the, in the agricultural equipment, farm equipment side of the equation. If they, if they use this old adage, then I've never heard them speak about it in, as far as agricultural engineers, but within the automobile community, and I always say automobile means road vehicles. It doesn't have to be a car, it could be a pickup truck, it could be a van, it could be a semi. There's, they always, they, they, there's two things they say. People buy horsepower, but drive torque. That, that stands true for the farm equipment. That stands true for everything. All right, but they always say in the car industry, you could you could sell a marginal car a marginal vehicle with a great engine meaning a marginal vehicle with a great engine can sell very can sell could have stellar sales that's 
and, and sell well in the showroom, but you can't sell a great car with a marginal engine. And, uh, <clears throat> and that has proven itself time and time and time again. And you could take a really great car, great vehicle, and the engine is marginal. It's kind of a dog in the showroom nobody really buys it and then they go and they put they update the engine put a new engine in it and do do little things and usually what they'll do with that particular point they'll change something on the outside the grill or the fascia or something so it looks kind of different and now all of a sudden this thing is you know people are fist fighting to get it so that does hold so that that definitely definitely does hold true but as an engineer Usually what happens is the engineer is the last person in the equipment business, the automobile business, and lots of times even the farm equipment business, all right, to identify what they're going to bring to market. And you, I would say probably in the farm equipment business, the engineer is more upfront, I mean more at the top of the heap as far as the decision-making process early on, but usually it's the marketing person that says, hey, we got to bring a, you know, we got to bring a new combine to market because, you know, John Deere is coming out with one and, uh, and uh, we got to bring a new tractor to market like Massey Ferguson just is coming out with the 8S. And, uh, and so usually the marketing guys are the impetus for this. And then the engineers are further down a decision-making process. And usually what would happen is that somewhere along the line, and, and historically the head of engineering uh, has, a, has a lot of experience and, and in a better company has practical experience. And why I say a better company? Because don't always think that that's the case. All right, um, whatever, we won't go there. So anyway, but... So they'll define <clears throat> they'll define goals, and just like I would ask my customers, how quick, how fast do you want to go? So they'll define goals, and they'll say, okay, we need, we want to have a vehicle, and um, that accelerates this more or less like this, as this, this whatever has this top speed, gets this fuel economy, pop, 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 and they'll start to define the goals, and then the the designers, which is not an engineer, the designer will do the body. So we want to be able to hit, you know, to fit four people in here and luggage and golf clubs and what have you. All this stuff comes together, and it it, it eventually all comes together and sifts out, and the task of developing the engine is eventually delegated with a set of stipulations to the engineering team that's doing the engine so that is what we are going to discuss today and it's the same thing with a farm tractor whether it's a combine or what have you those pieces of equipment are much more complex than a road vehicle because the power plant is only is obviously essential for it to move and to do work but lots of times you could get a combine and maybe and there's a lot of attention put in the feeder house all right, or let's let's not even go that complicated. Let's talk about a push lawnmower or a lawn tractor. So, I mean, the lawn tractor gets the, the lawn tractor company could say, for instance, like I have a John Deere D one ten. Well, they buy their engines from Briggs and Stratton. So, if you know, if I if they if that Briggs and Stratton engine is in that and is in something else, well, the engine is the same. They claim made to John Deere specifications, but uh, I don't know whether that's really true. But uh, the fact of the matter, so they put their emphasis on the mower deck. So like if you look at a Cub Cadet, they, they said a Cub Cadet signature mower, the signature cut. So they're, they're going to they're gonna be more concerned with the, the blades and the, the, the shape of the deck and, and the, the tip speed. But the engine is just like, you know, 
the engine is just the engine. So uh, in an agricultural equipment for like a combine, the engine just has to do work. If you have a, a farm tractor like the Massey-Ferguson 8S, using that as an example, I mean, yeah, they're going to say we need so much power, and, and there's elements of the engine that are going to be very important, but the rest of the tractor is more important. Whereas in a car or a truck, the engine has more prominence then obviously the suspension has prominence, the interior has prominence, and all the other things, but the engine's up there with with a higher level of authority than it is in farm equipment. So, uh, but ultimately, the procedure to, to develop an engine is going to be, have a lot of parallels. So, now that I've spent 24 minutes telling you that, let's talk about the different tools that are used in engine development. So the first tool that I'm going to talk about, and this is in no particular order, and I'm going to give you a little overview of each, is the dynamometer. And it's abbreviated dyno. And and there's different types of dynamometers. All right, so uh, there's what's called an engine dynamometer, and that basically is used in with every industry, all right, that develops engines. And what that does is that the engine is tested on this on this piece of equipment and it's going to measure the torque that the engine makes and it's going to mathematically uh convert that also to horsepower so it's torque and horsepower and what a dynamometer does is that it puts a load on the engine so the engine is on a car that's not in a farm tractor it's not in a truck it's not in a car it's not in anything <clears throat> it's not even on a lawnmower all right so what they so the engine attaches to this dynamometer and it's a piece of test equipment so that is an engine dyno so there's no vehicle or machinery attached to it now once you get into the engine dyno that there are two different types of engine dynos there's what they call a water brake b-r-a-k-e and they have an <coughs> excuse me <coughs> excuse me an eddy current dyno now on every dyno engine dyno there's something that's going to create resistance and this resistance is what loads the engine and there's usually a strain gauge in there and that's how they develop i'm oversimplifying it but i want the take-home message here is i want you to know that there's a water brake dyno and an eddy current dyno and what's going to bolt to the flywheel of the engine is called the absorber because it's going to absorb it looks almost like a torque converter is going to absorb the power, and that's how the engine is loaded. Now, a water brake dyno is, actually uses water, regular water, uh, to create a resistance against the against the crankshaft for the engine to be tested. Whereas an eddy current dyno uses a magnetic force, uses electric electric field to control the, the load on the engine. Uh, most better dynos, while well, we dynos today are all eddy current and why eddy current is uh, the, pre- the preferable dyno is that you could have more finite control because a lot of dynamics happen with water. It gets hot, it starts to boil, uh, you have to flush it. Some, some dynos store the water and put it back in. So there's a lot of things that are going on. And with the eddy current, you could have a much more defined control and you could do better. Not that you can't do steady state tests with water dyno, but with the eddy current, it's more, it has basically has more finite control and it 
and it doesn't skew as the water starts to boil and get hot because there's no water. So most better dynos today are eddy current. There's also a lot of eddy current dynos now in the performance aftermarket. So if you go to an engine shop, they could have an eddy current dyno, they could have a water brake dyno. And there's people that are fans of both but the eddy current is more expensive and there's no denying it has more control right so and more control and then you could keep the load on it longer and it's more finite so that's an engine dyno and this would be for gasoline or diesel doesn't make any difference the way the fuel system is set up is going to be different and then the adapters not i mean so if you have a a a b6 cummings on there versus a small block ford well you need to be able to adapt it to the motor mounts the fuel system the you know the the flywheel what have you so all of that stuff but the dyno does not know what's it's what it's testing all right so now we're going to move to chassis dyno now a chassis dyno it loads the engine through the drive wheels so chassis dynos have become very very popular over the years and they're used for development and also and what will happen is that the so the drive wheels are put on rollers and then and the the resistance is created through the rollers now there's two types is what's called an inertia dyno and is then again is an eddy current dyno an inertia dyno has the tire to the vehicle is driven onto drums and the drum has a specified weight and the software knows the weight of the drum and then it has accelerometers on there and it measures how quickly the drum accelerates and mathematically does the math to convert that to horsepower and torque what's and then the eddy current is just like the eddy still has a drum where the tire rolls up on it and the vehicle rolls up on the drum and it's the, the, the drive wheels turn up but eddy current just like the eddy current engine dyno is able to load it at a constant steady state uh condition and it doesn't have this it, it, the inertia dyno basically is is good is simplistic for wide open throttle because other than the sensors measuring the drum speed uh, there's not that much going on there but the eddy current is much better uh, a lot more flexibility a lot more accuracy and and uh it's a, a better 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 uh better better tool to use so it's like a you know whereas the inertia dyno is like an adjustable wrench and uh, an eddy current is like a six-point socket all right so both of good anybody who's listening has an inertia dyno or a friend of mine has an inertia dyno but like i said it, it's like anything in life i mean you uh you pick and choose what's going to be best for you there are no water brake chassis dynos that i am aware of so on engine dyno that's engine only it's water brake or eddy current on chassis dyno it's either inertia or eddy current right now in the agricultural community they also have what's called a pto power takeoff dyno and on the aftermarket level i've only seen water brake power takeoff dynos so it would measure the horsepower and torque i'd measure torque and convert to horsepower coming out of the pto and it uses a resistance and historically they use water there may be eddy current um a pto dynos but i have not seen one so in essence on a piece of farm equipment the pto dyno is akin to the chassis dyno on a road vehicle because the chassis dyno is going to measure 
what power is getting to the tire because uh, when we have on an engine down they call it crankshaft power or flywheel horsepower versus the chassis dyno, which is the power that is getting to the tire. So that's the loss through the transmission and the drivetrain. And then on a piece of farm equipment, like a tractor, you wouldn't use a PTO dyno on a, on a combine, all right, that it's going to measure the power that is getting to the, to the, to the power takeoff, power to the power takeoff, so which is akin to the tire. And, has, and has, usually that is uh, with the water brake so now the next type of dyno is and some people call it a trailering dyno or a pull behind dyno and believe it or not i've actually seen these a couple of times on interstate 80 and what they'll basically do is they will uh and they do a lot with pickup trucks and they'll have this it looks like a, it looks like a trailer it's not it's not big almost looks like a teardrop depending upon the design they have and and what it will do is that they'll hook it up to this you can hook it up to a car if you have a trailer hitch but historically they used for tow vehicles and it's either a trailering dyno or a pull behind dyno and it'll have controls wired up to the cab of the truck or the vehicle i should say and this dyno will actually put resistance rolling resistance in and you could think of it in simplistic terms on terms and lots of and usually there'll be eddy current also and what they'll basically do is that they'll they'll put a resistance like you having the parking brake on in a vehicle or driving with the brakes on but they're actually not putting a brake on because they would limit how much load they could put on it then a brake shoe would burn up or a calip or a brake pair would burn up so historically they're eddy current and they they have a generator in them or what have you it's a complicated thing and it's called a trailering or pull behind dyno so what would happen is that if an engine is being developed then it'll first the first stage will be on the engine dyno and then the next stage will be depending upon the application on a chassis dyno now keep in mind that there are also chassis dynos that are used for farm equipment because they have to measure what power is getting to the tire all right i mean with i spoke about pto uh a lot of farm equipment repair shops or dealerships have a pto dyno but during the development stages that they will also look at the power that is getting to the wheels because they want to minimize the loss the drivetrain losses and then you'll have a a pull behind or trailering dyno and that's going to be set up with some strain gauges and it'll measure and it'll load it'll uh, load the vehicle so in essence you could take a whatever ford f-250 pickup truck and you could go down the road with this with this trailering dyno which is not large depending upon the vehicle they're going to test how much resistance it has to make but it's like a little u-haul trailer and they could simulate this truck pulling thirty thousand pounds up the longest grades so that's what they basically could do it so you don't have to pull a thirty thousand pound trailer this is a simulation of it so you have to remember when you do have a trailering dyno the purpose is that you're 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 testing the drivetrain you're testing the engine you're testing the torque converter you're testing the transmission the axle ratio right you're not going to be able to test whether the suspension or the brakes can handle a thirty thousand pound load that's not trailer hitching and banging and swaying all over the road this is just the work the work aspect of it and then what they'll do 
and it's like anything in life. There's all different types and all different levels of complexity. But there's certain grades, G-R-A-D-E-S, hills in the United States that they will, that they've, that they've plotted. And uh, did, have you ever seen, there was that exercise machine you used to advertise on TV. It was quite expensive. I forgot what it was called. And uh, you, you, you could go in and you could say, well, I want to make, make believe that I'm, uh, I'm, um, uh, riding the, the exercise bicycle up the Colorado Rocky Mountains and in uh, whatever at uh, Pikes Peak, and it showed a picture like that, and it, and it would make the resistance of you going up in Pikes Peak. So that's in essence what there's in simplistic terms what they could do. They could put a set load on it, thirty thousand pounds, or they could say we're going to put thirty thousand pounds at the rate at the grade that we'd go up to Pikes Peak, or uh, there's a couple of hills out west, one out on eighty coming. Uh, going going east into salt lake city was going down well you got to go uphill and downhill and uh, there's one in virginia believe it or not so there's all these, these these grades that are that that the industry knows then they could program that in or they could just go and set you know hey we're going to put like like this truck is towing thirty thousand pounds away from this stoplight so that is a motoring dyno not a motoring you know, pull behind or trailering dyno and to a certain extent they use that in farm equipment also and what they used to do is they don't talk about that much anymore but in older farm equipment they would talk about draw bar horsepower versus you know versus pto horsepower versus engine horsepower and the draw bar horsepower basically was akin almost to like a drag car where it was how much power is actually getting to the tire and being able to to grip and they would and with the draw bar they would use that and the draw bar would be designed to have weight transfer like a drag car to the rear wheels but so in essence those are pulled behind or trailering dynos and they have a strain gauge on them and like i said it's quite complex i'm making it overly simple and then the other type of dyno during engine development is called a motoring m-o-t-o-r-i-n-g dyno and uh i was blessed to be able to experience a motoring dyno once or twice in my life and what it is is that you would attach an engine to this dyno it could be diesel or gasoline the one that i happen to experience has a gasoline engine on it well the race engine on it i think i don't know if it was a drag engine i don't remember and uh it's got oil in it so it's got oil in the crankcase has no coolant no anything and it has no fuel it doesn't run and what they basically do is they use this big electric motor to turn this reciprocating engine to turn this reciprocating engine and they accelerate it and they do everything and the thing is that if you were to hear an engine make a pull on a motoring dyno there's no combustion there's no fuel it's just the air moving out of the engine you would swear on a stack of bibles that the engine was running with combustion and that's exactly how it sounds so the movement of the air in and out of the engine so it's the cylinder filling and emptying all right the the auto cycle a four-stroke cycle you would tend to you would not the tend that you would believe it's running when i run this thing i don't smell anything no exhaust all right and that's how and that's what's called a motoring dyno and what a motoring dyno was used for is to measure pumping losses to measure frictional losses and also when it, when they have cylinder pressure sensors in there so it's going to not be the pressure of combustion but the pressure of the air volumetric it's used as one of 
excuse me, one of the tools, let me say tools, one of the inputs into figuring, calculating volumetric efficiency, which is the amount of cylinder fill an engine has. So that is called a motoring dyno. You may be able to go on the internet and and uh, see what it looks like. It's the realm of the OE industry. It's the realm of really probably like Formula One uh, race teams and what have you. But it's an engine that is spun with a big electric motor. And then you could instrument whatever you want. You want to do VE, you want to do friction, you want to do whatever. So it's a, it's a motor. It's, so that's called a motoring dyno no combustion whatsoever by eliminating the combustion is that you were eliminating the variables i say well that was a good or this gas wasn't that good or we had the spark advance wrong so the thing is if you if you want to minimize friction inside an engine or pumping losses the motoring dyno is the way to go so what happens is that these are all the different dynos and there's something else and it's in a class by itself and I was blessed to be able to be exposed to it and do a couple of articles on it with the with the person who actually developed it, Bob Fox, who owns um, Diamond Pistons, and he developed a tool called the Spintron. So it's S P I N T R O. And if you do an internet search and Spintron with my name, you'll find an article that I, a couple of articles I did for Engineering Magazine uh, about it. And with the Spintron is different than a motoring dyno because the spintron you actually have to sacrifice an engine block and a cylinder head and all it is and it is used to study valve train movement so it's used to study valve train and they have these high speed cameras and they have uh and it also converts it converts the 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 imagery to an oscilloscope pattern and you're able to follow the 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 lifter on the on the camshaft the the movement of the valve the spring the movement of the push rod and that also uses a big electric motor like a motoring dyno but it's it's not a it's it's an engine it's not pumping any air it's strictly looking for valve train it's studying valve train movement and if you look at if anybody is a race fan and specifically like a nascar fan but even i mean top fuel and drag race uh anything that's really engine de- de- dependent i mean obviously as i said they're all engine dependent right but if you were to take like a road race guy or scca guy or something like that is that the engine is you know is a main main part of it but the suspension is more the main part whereas the, the other venues and uh that the engine is everything so it is called a spintron s-p-i-n-t-r-o-n and uh and Bob Fox makes them in Michigan, and I was blessed to be up there and spend two days working on a spintron, then went down to Jessel over here in New Jersey, and Jessel valve train has a couple of spintrons. And But uh, what I started to get at, if you look at the big power they're making in NASCAR, you look at the big power that they're making in, in NHRA or drag racing and what have you, is that it's really coming that the spintron was the f- next frontier that allowed everyone to see what the valve, the what was a what was a push rod engine, the push rod, the lifter, and the camshaft, and everything is happening dynamically. And lots of times, well, I shouldn't say lots of times. Well, everybody was <laughs> surprised what truly was happening. So prior to the sort of spintron, and even and the OE manufacturers used a spintron, and uh, I'm sure like that new Corvette engine the uh, lt6 and uh, spent a lot of time on a spintron 
or something like that. So, uh, so very, very, it's basically all it's going to do. It's high speed photography to study the action of the valve train. So it's used for valve train development. It's not used for crankshaft. It's not used for airflow. It's used for valve train development. So that's on the, I'm going to put those all on the dynos. Now, when it comes to the cylinder head, remember the cylinder head is the pipe that fills the cylinder with, with air, and then fuel gets introduced someplace, either like with a carburetor prior to the cylinder head or directly into the cylinder with direct injection, gasoline, or diesel. So on the cylinder head end of it is that there's three pieces of basic equipment that are used and one is called a flow bench and i've mentioned these before i had one i had a sf600 from superflow and that measures the airflow as a depression which is a vacuum has electric motors either has a it, for intake port it's vacuum sucking and for exhaust port it's blowing and that measures excuse me the air and you do a mathematical calculation and through the depression and uh, in cfm cubic feet of air per minute and there's ancillary tools that you work with that there's velocity probes i used to use inside the port and what have you and all these different things but the main the, the foundational part is the flow bench and flow benches are used in engine development still today if you go to john deere you go to ford you go to anybody excuse me they're all using they all still use flow benches then and lots of times what will happen during engine development is that they'll create what they call as a flow box and it's it's made through rapid prototyping and it's it's the initial design or it's a design of the potential ports in the combustion chamber so the intake port the exhaust port and the combustion chamber and they call it a flow box and they'll do the development work on the flow box so in other words and when ford is creating a song that case ih is creating a song that they're not going to go cast all these heads and do all of this these big you know big diesel cylinder head or what have you or gasoline motor and put it on the flow benches an aftermarket shop like i would a race shop would do is that they have it's the one cylinder because on a flow bench you're only flooring one cylinder anyway so they have what they call a flow box and then it's it's done and they they usually create them to what they some sort of rapid prototyping and they use use lom as i said lam uh, uh laminate object manufacturing and they use that uh, stereolithography printing now and all different things so it's all falls under the guise of rapid prototyping so they're not going to go cast a cylinder head uh and say oh, this design is no good throw it out so they do it through this rapid prototyping it's called a flow box f-l-o-b-o-x <clears throat> and that goes on the flow bench and then there's two other and it is two other tools that that would go along with that so the flow bench is basically going to show you airflow in and out of the cylinder head and then the next the next tool that attaches to the flow bench is called a swirl meter or a tumble meter now that's the mixture motion that is induced by the cylinder head filling the cylinder so swirl is it goes around the perimeter and then works its way towards the center of the bore so it would be like water going down the drain of a sink it spins and like a like a um uh uh not i'm say a tidal wave like a a whirlpool all right so that swirl and then another type of mixture motion is called tumble and then 
tumble is and historically the placement of the valves in the cylinder head in relation to the bore is going to determine whether it's a swirl head or a tumble head if it's if the valves are to the perimeter of the bore and rolled over like, like a modern overhead cam engine or like a hemi engine then that's historically a tumble motion so when the charge comes in and this is on the and the swirl and tumble are only on the intake ports it's not on the exhaust ports so when the charge comes in it's going to follow the perimeter of the bore and like it's usually taught by saying like pouring wine into a goblet where you it's coming down the side it's it's hitting the bottom of the glass and then rolling up or it would be hitting the crown of the piston and then rolling and tumbling up so they call that tumble if it goes around the perimeter of the bore it's called swirl and then there's also chaotic motion which has neither swirl or tumble it's just falling in there all right but so in essence with cylinder head development and why you want and swirl and tumble are called mixture motion and the higher the more amount of mixture motion you have in theory to a certain point because you always overdo everything is mixture motion is that you will have a quicker burn speed so the flame will propagate quicker across the bar which means that it's going to be less prone for detonation it's going to require less spark advance it's all it's all good uh you know, at one particular point, the energy used to create mixture motion will, will start to stagnate the airflow. But I mean, whatever. But that's carrying it to, uh, you know, to an extreme. So, so, th- so basically, in essence, is that if you even look at, and this is the same thing for diesel engines. It's not just a gasoline, but if you look at a lot of these engines, they specifically diesels and farm equipment that you may have, for instance. Uh, an engine and i believe case ih with their tf4 engine just using as an example <clears throat> they claim to have scr only supplemental catalytic reduction i mean selective catalytic reduction um and they don't need the other emission components as much because they claim that they're cleaning it up in the combustion chamber and one of the in the bore one of the ways that you clean things up in the bore is to have a higher level of mixture motion so we'll leave it at that but you know we don't talk about a lot about that in the agricultural community but anybody who's developing an ag engine is going to be concerned all these things to a certain extent and specifically once they start to put the criteria of meeting a certain emission standards remember anything on any engine gasoline or diesel anything that you put on in the exhaust and what they call an after treatment is you're cleaning up what you could not clean up in the combustion chamber all right so swirl and tumble are both what they call mixture motions and they will improve the flame speed the burn speed as the flame propagates across the ball which is what you want you don't want a slow burn you want a fast burn next thing is another tool that is used with camshafts is and i'm talking about tools i'm not talking about software that's used to design it or grind it is there something that's called camshaft inspection equipment there's a couple of different companies that make it i had done some work with audi technologies outside of philadelphia or audi thomas audi was his first name a real smart smart guy and um and what camshaft inspection equipment does is actually plots it has a test stand that you turn the camshaft on this test stand and it has a rotary sensor and it has a sensor that rides on the lobe and it plots the actual lobe and what it does and there's there's many things to camshaft design other than just duration and lift 
and overlap with it does jerk rate and what have you but what camshaft inspection equipment is used for is to make sure it's that the lobe that is what you want it to be and what i mean by that is that and it kind of they use it in the oe industry and it migrated into better race shops engine shops is because let's say you call comp cams and you say i want this cam blah 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 you know and a lot of these a lot of these engine guys say well i have a custom ground cam they grind it to my specifications and and i'm not going to say that's not true but they just say give me 20 degrees more duration or give me this or move the lobe separation angle from 114 to 112 then i mean <laughs> there's a lot a lot of mathematics and science in the camshaft lobe so they may be tweaking it a little bit when they have it made but what will happen is that we start to use camshaft inspection equipment to make sure that each lobe is ground properly because you will find when you're building race engines you will find that the lobe may be on number one in number one cylinder right uh number one intake is is ground what you want but the others are all over the map so the thing is that so it got to be where and in in the the engine building race engine building is that when you order the cam you tell you tell the company hey man i'm gonna i got a i got a cam well audi technology was cam pro plus and there was another company uh i think it was called quadrant scientific and he they made something called cam doctor but um but the thing is oh man i gotta i mean as a christian i mean you know i'm not supposed to lie but you say man i I got a cam pro plus so i'm going to check that cam and all of a sudden your engines ran better because they said oh man this guy's going to check this cam let's make sure that all the lobes are the same and they use that in in development work on engines so when the designer designs a cam profile today he would design on a computer screen that he wants to make sure that the actual grind that, that that they had made to test the engine all right is going to be what he designed that doesn't skew so it'd be like saying well i got you know i want the spark plug thirty-five thousands, but the engine one we put in there is forty-two thousands. so so that's another piece of equipment that's used and and the oe industry has so much better than, than the performance industry did but that's the same basic tenant of it so the other thing that's used on the engine dyno with the engine dyno is doing the work is that it's very common during engine well not common it's during engine development is to use pressure probes in the cylinders and that's one of the things that are used to tell uh, to calculate volumetric efficiency but also is that you want to when you're doing ve they're doing it on on a motoring dyno where there's no combustion event and then they'll also look at pressure probes in the cylinders for the pressure rise in the cylinder that's not to be confused with compression ratio or cranking compression this is the compression that it's going to be the the pressure in the cylinder created by the expansion of the flame and the thing is that there's a company called kistler k-i-s-t-l-e-r and they make a lot of pressure probes there's other ones and this is all high end uh the kistler stuff you'll probably find in a better race shop but um once you get to the oe level i mean it's crazy crazy what they have but they're looking at the pressure the pressure gradient in the cylinder and the pressure rise versus crankshaft angle and uh so that it's another part and that would all be done in the dyno they're not going to be running down interstate 80 with pressure probes in the cylinders and then another thing that they will look at 
is during engine development is air fuel ratio, be it diesel or gasoline. And there is, uh, and they'll also look at what's called brake specific fuel consumption, which is the amount of fuel in pounds per horsepower hour and that the engine is consuming under a certain load. And this is all from the dyno. This would be any engine dyno. You wouldn't be looking at brake specific on a chassis dyno because it's too hard. I mean, for all intents and purposes, impossible for you to plumb it up. So they would look at that, all right, brake specific fuel consumption. And the whole idea, that's where your fuel economy comes from, by making the engine more efficient. And remember, in every engine, there's three areas of loss. There's, and what we mean by an area of loss is that you're not getting the full BTU content of the fuel doing work. So there's thermal loss, there's pumping loss, and there's frictional loss. So thermal loss is the heat that goes out the into the coolant, and then out the exhaust the pumping losses the work the engine does to to fill it up to cylinder fill and cylinder empty and then the frictional losses basically everything else running the oil pump the angularity of the crankshaft that's why an engine designer is going to play with what they call rod to stroke ratio so the angularity of so there's so many things come into play and if you look at a modern engine and if you look at specifically like a high performance engine uh, but you know keep in mind that the term high performance is misleading if you look at a new farm tractor that engine is designed to be high performance maybe not be a drag race engine but high performance so high performance simply means that you're optimizing its operating state within those three areas of loss with the pumping loss the thermal loss than the frictional loss so they will look they will look at that and then uh they'll use oxygen sensors uh, to look at air fuel ratio and there's wide band and there's narrow band oxygen sensors and a, a narrow band oxygen sensor was is one that could only accurately identify stoichiometric and on gasoline it's 14.7 to 1 but to be and whereas a wide band oxygen sensor is able to accurately identify air fuel ratios richer and leaner than stoichiometric and every fuel has a stoichiometric value diesel fuel has a stoichiometric value ethanol has a stoichiometric value so when you have an e85 capable engine it recognizes the stoichiometric value of e85 the the air fuel ratio the amount of air to fuel is different than would be an e0 same thing with a diesel engine so there's every fuel has a stoichiometric value all right and so there'll be oxygen sensors that look at that in the exhaust and historically they'll be in the they'll have one for each zone like i said it all depends on what stage of engine development it's in and another thing that they'll look at is egt exhaust gas temperatures and historically most of the time and there'll be exhaust gas temperature sensors in the in the exhaust system most of the time they'll read it they'll start by reading it about an inch or so out of the exhaust port but they'll be before the turbo after the turbo, if it's turbocharged they're all over the place so they're going to clock they're not going to clock they're going to monitor exhaust gas temperatures and historically most of this is done on the engine dyno so at that particular point they already have it defined enough that when it's, if it goes into a road vehicle or in a body of a vehicle or a farm tractor it's on a chassis dyno or a pto dyno they already developed all of this on the engine dyno because the engine dyno allows you to get easy access to things you can control the load there's a lot of dynamics that come into play 
The next thing that they'll do is they'll have a test cell called an NVH cell, noise, vibration, and harshness. And the noise, vibration, and harshness test cell is an acoustically designed room, and it's all loaded with these acoustic tiles. They're all crazy different angles and what have you. It looks like a sound better in a sound booth i've been in sound booths for radio stations and and they're nothing nothing compared to a nvh cell at uh at an, anybody who's developing an engine and they'll have usually many many nvh cells and they'll if they'll have one it's almost like a chest like an engine dyno where they want to measure the, the 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 noise vibration and harshness and why they have this acoustic tiles is that they want to be able to take us take a, a reading of sound and usually they don't look at decibels they'll, they'll look at other things and they'll look at frequencies and like i said for you know for this show we don't need to get into that but it's called an nv8 cell and then i'll have other ones for just a drivetrain matter of fact i'd seen a video from massey ferguson of a 8s running on a, a turn on a chassis dental turning the rollers in an nv8 cell so they'll look at nvh and different levels and they'll want to identify it. so you could have a uh, let's say a transmission that's just being turned by electric motor or what have you so there's nvh which is noise vibration and harshness they're not looking at horsepower they're not looking at torque they're looking and these are the final things before this engine and vehicle comes or a piece of farm equipment comes into production i shouldn't say into production they've already identified that and uh and that's in in an nvh cell noise vibration and harshness now another thing what happens is that one of the last steps is to do emission testing and emission testing and one of the first things that they will do or i shouldn't say one of the first i one of the tests to do is what's called a shed test it's an acronym capital s capital h capital e capital d shed test and that stands for sealed housing for evaporative performance so there's no p it's the uh, actually not evaporative performance sealed housing for evaporative determination that's the d in shed so what will happen is that that's so i don't want to say everything things gas they give off emissions and they give off emissions even when they're not running and usually it's heat related and if you remember back years ago when you bought a new pickup truck a new car the engine was painted a glossy black or not black glossy paint with Ford had blue uh chevy had red or orange had the orange pontiac had a blue everybody owes and bill had gold all right so um and and then they start to go to these flat black paints or very dull paints or what have you and everybody's ah, i gotta save money no it was because what had happened is that those paints would gas they'd give off emissions and and the shed test picks up emissions that are emitted without the vehicle or the engine running and believe it or not you'd have a chainsaw sold today in the united states a lawnmower a lawn tractor all right a backup generator that has to go through a shed test 
And uh, so it's the hydrocarbon emissions that are given off from the gas tank, from the carburetor, from the paint that's on it, and all these different things on a vehicle, the plastics that the interior is made out of, and what have you, all is determined. So what happens is this vehicle, or this engine, depending upon what it is, if it's a lawnmower, right, or if it's a chainsaw, and it's a smaller shed, then you would put a car in, right? But the thing is that is that you have to go and they measure the evaporative emissions. So the gassing, whether it's the gassing of the paint, the plastics, the fuel tank, what have you, the fuel's in it, and they do it hot and they do it cold. So that is called a shed test. And the shed test was responsible for the charcoal canister and all these things that came out over the years and the capless fuel systems and what have you. So that is called a shed test. And then what will happen is that now this is this is more for road vehicles light duty road vehicles not the shed test but the the drive cycle test so when you go to the you go to the dealership and you look at a new car you look at a new light duty pickup truck it says epa rated 24 miles per gallon this is all done on the drive cycle on a dynamometer so there's a drive cycle test for fuel economy there's a drive cycle test for emissions and that's how they caught volkswagen with their TDI engines because they had a calibration in them that gave better fuel economy but had high oxides of nitrogen emissions. So they do they do that, all right, and they measure CO, which is hydrocarbons, unburned fuel, uh, I mean, HC, hydrocarbons, unburned fuel, CO, which is partially burned fuel, NOx, oxides of nitrogen, which is created through pressure, heat, and exposure time. So once the the leading edge flame temperature in the cylinder is 2,500 degrees or higher F, that it creates a high level oxides of nitrogen. That's what EGR is all about. That's what on a diesel selective catalytic reduction is about. And they also look at the oxygen content. But what but is I get ready to close this here is that when they test emissions on a vehicle they 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 don't they it's a weighted emissions test it's weighted so they put a big bag and, and it's not as big as a bag like you would put do you ever see if anybody bag up corn like in a field where they have a bag where they store corn in the field and they and they blow the corn into it or let me put this it's probably more like a bag that you would cover a round bale with with hay so they put this bag but it's made of heavy material they put this bag on the exhaust pipe of the engine whatever it may be all right whether it's a diesel in a combine or whether it's in a pickup truck or the economy car it's irrelevant and they do this dynamometer testing and what they do is they weigh the emissions coming off the engine and that's why if you look at even if you you know you may and i i did an article on my website about this and i did a show about it and and i'm going to reference diesel all right for tier four is that the tier four standard for a backhoe is different than for a combine because it's based upon the weighted average so they weigh the emissions that are coming from the engine and in this bag to make it simplistic and it's usually it is usually be grams per mile g per mile or on a piece of farm equipment or industrial equipment it'll it'll be grams per hour of fuel consumed 
So the thing is, that's why the on people get confused is that if you buy a tier four pickup truck versus a tier four uh, skid steer loader, it's going to have a host of different emissions because it's going to look at the grams, the weight of the emissions that are put out during that use cycle. So this is all all very very scientific and it's it's very accurate so they're actually weighing and then you know and as a farmer right you would take a you have a test weight for your corn right you have a test weight for your corn for your soybeans and you have a well a bushel of corn is what 56 pounds so it's you know so if so if you if your corn is coming at 62 then you're going to end up having a higher test weight so you can have more bushels per acre because you're, you're reducing it down to 56 pounds so uh so keep that in mind is that's why one engine family so if you were to take let's say and i'm going to use like a a b60 or a, a, a cummins b series engine so you can find that in a ram pickup truck you can find it in uh uh i think uh, don't hold me to i think apache uses in their sprayer you can find it in a backhoe possibly you can find it in a uh i think you'll find it in a uh, ver- the, the new versatile uh farm track versatile and they built it for Kubota also farm tractor right so but it's going to have a different emission package on it because it's a different standard and it's based upon the weight of the emissions so in essence when i used to teach this it was a crude it was a crude analogy but it worked so forgive me is that if you have a little dog when he goes to the bathroom it's it doesn't have a lot of mass to it right if you have a saint bernard and he goes to the bathroom it has a lot of mass in it so the thing basically is chemically if you were to analyze the the analyze their their feces i guess excuse me for being crude it may have the same elements in it but the saint bernard has a lot more than the dashund so that's what happens is that because they weigh this that so and it's for automobiles it's for trucks and that's why there's different weight classes and when you get into farm equipment and commercial equipment it's 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 based upon the amount of fuel that they would use uh it, during a normal work cycle it's not it's con- different than a road vehicle but it's still a weighted test so in essence this is the development these are the different tools that are used to develop an engine from the different dynamometers the uh the motoring dyno the engine dyno all right the flow bench the spintron for valve train movement and it's very very it's very very exciting and none of this works on magic there's a lot of it's all mathematics there's a lot of computer simulation programs involved in this which i did not get into all right the thing basically is that i want to talk about the tools right the tools of developing an engine and that is why we have these engines that run so well today and get such good fuel economy and it's so powerful and don't need to be massive because through all this development just like as a farmer as a seed breeder right that we could breed now corn seed for for higher yield for drought tolerance we could do a triple stack in it and have above ground and below ground insect protection and disease protection we know how to do it more than we did 50 years ago and the thing is then we know how to do it more but by bringing all these tools in 
and 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 this following this procedure no different than planting a crop or preparing the soil doing a soil test doing this worrying about seed to soil contact worry about nutrition worry about uh, all these other things soil moisture well this is how an engine is developed so when you look under the hood of your new pickup truck you go and you look under the hood of your combine you look under the hood of your sprayer your farm tractor you go look under the hood of your lawn tractor you go look under the hood of your lawnmower your your chainsaw whatever it may be is no what a chainsaw but all of these different steps in some way shape or form have been it's just they're not throwing darts against a wall and so how much air flow do we need i don't know joey whatever you got there give it to me that doesn't work that way so i i didn't i'm not doing a toolbox test today and i'm not doing a a, a listener's letter because i already went long but i hope that you have a better understanding and i also hope that there's someone out there who's listening to it whether it's your son whether it's your daughter whether it's you yourself whether it's you yourself that this has become a catalyst it is so exciting i love engines i love engine development i love studying the aspects of each part of the engine and to how to and what's done to maximize it and as a christian even though this is man-made this all works on the laws of the earth that god created from the seven from the six days of creation and the seventh day he rested so i could go look at combustion in a top fuel dragster and i could see the lord in that because the lord is there just as much he is as in his sequoia tree or a sunset he's allowed man to use these things that he created that he created in the world to uh, to uh, to make engines so i see god when i hear when i hear a top fuel motor i hear a drag motor come up on a two-step man you know that that, that that does my heart good and i'm and, and and i see our creator in it because all of the dynamics of that cylinder filling the emptying the combustion the flame expansion the exhaust the velocity through the exhaust port everything that's all nature it's all nature man didn't create it man is just using it just like you know you could be a wheat farmer and somebody could make cereal with it they can make flour with it they can break bake bread with it and it's all the same so listen i hope you enjoyed it check out the uh check out the uh the tool buyer's guide there's no engine development tools on there and then next week we'll get back to a normal normal idle chatter so uh you have a blessed day and be well and know that the hot rod farmers pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and my beloved beloved america be safe and i'll catch you next week thanks so much for listening bye bye